podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Are we ready to go? Yeah, we are ready to go. Over to you lot. Okay. Hello and welcome again to another edition of Football Ruined My Life. Today we're going to be talking about... No, no, I've forgotten who I was. So I think I'm going to start again. <laughs> Hello, this is Colin Schindler welcoming you to another edition of Football Ruined My Life with my two best friends, John Holmes and Paddy Barclay. And today... We're all going to talk about Europe. No, not the Europe that meant neither Laura Kunzberg nor Katja Adler managed to sleep for about three years, but the Europe of the European Cup and the European Cup Winners' Cup and the UEFA Cup. When Bill Shankly was once asked if he had managed Liverpool in the UEFA Cup, his reply was, we never finished low enough to qualify. (laughs) And talking of UEFA, I couldn't help thinking during the national tear yourself apart into pieces debate that went on prior to the 2016 referendum, that if Brexit meant leaving not only the single market, the customs union and the European Court of Justice, but also UEFA, so no Champions League or UEFA league places for British clubs, would the eventual result have been different? Paddy? First of all, I, I was agog in the notion that Britain would leave UEFA as well as the thing. I know you were only joking in the way you do. However, I think, as always, your joke had a brilliant idea behind it. If I were a cynic and I were in charge of the Premier League, I would long since have actually done that, but not in a negative way. I would have invited Real Madrid, Barcelona, Inter, Milan, Juventus, Rangers, Celtic, Ajax to join the Premier League. And formed a Premier League that was, in fact, a World League. I would also have invited Flamengo, Boca Juniors. You know, no more messing about. No more plotting. Just have it. Have a World League and call it the Premier League and base it in London. So much better to be proactive about it. Just do it rather than wait for it to be cited in Qatar or Abu Dhabi. No, that's nonsense, Paddy. You've talked some nonsense in your time, but that's the path of all understanding, as they say. I've done better than that, John. As they say, (laughs) how on earth would you put Rangers and Celtic in that league? No, of course not. They're terrific sides who would happily fit into the English Championship, as it is at the moment. No. The problem... Wait a minute, uh, before you go any further with that, I'm not saying that Rangers or Celtic would go in at the top level they would have to work their way up several levels, in my opinion. You're being very kind in calling them championship standard clubs. So you'd invite them to join the Alliance Premier League or whatever it's called, the National League. You're using outdated terms, but suffice it to say that the International Premier League, which wouldn't need the words international because it would be the World League, which... Let's face it, it will be within 20 years anyway. I just think much better for us to plan it, to own it, rather than simply be there and have to negotiate our way into it. Are you in favour of it, Paddy? Are you saying this is inevitable because this is the way football is going? Yeah, yeah, I think it's... Or or are you saying this is a good idea? I think it's the least worst option 
if you're going to have a breakaway European Super League, best that it be thought through, based soundly on experience and done from the country which is going to host it, i.e. done by the Premier League, than to have it done by hijacking businessmen, which will happen, certainly will happen within 20 years. Knowing that I'll be dead in 20 years, I'm very, very happy to forecast that. That's the only sensible remark you've made. (laughs) Can we talk about reality? That's what I am talking about, John. No, you're not, Paddy. You're talking nonsense. The Champions League versus the European Cup. The European Cup, we used to have one representative, unless we had won it the previous year, which did happen on occasions. Mm -hmm. We all supported the club who were our representatives in the European Cup. And there was a funny competition called the Fairs Cup, and there was a hilarious competition called the Cup Winners Cup, which always amused people. I know, we people. won it. I don't, it's not funny. It was, a it was the first one Leicester played in, and they weren't even the Cup winners that year. They only got into it because Tottenham won the double. And so we found in the first first time we played in it, we played Glen Torren from Ireland, and we beat them about 8-1 on aggregate. So it was a rather silly competition. But the European Cup was a magnificent competition. A lot of people of our era, our first memories, really, of European football was watching the magnificent 7-3 game. That was the first sight we had of Di Stefano, of Hento, of Puskas, of Santa Maria, these great players and so on. That was wonderful. And then Benfica came after them, and then we had Milan, and eventually, of course, on that wonderful night at Wembley, Manchester United, who had been one of the pioneers of British sides going into Europe, won it. Matt Busby and Bobby Charlton were in tears. Everybody's memories went back to Munich and so on, and it was magnificent. You missed Lisbon. You missed out Celtic winning in Lisbon. Of course, let's not forget, Celtic were magnificent winners. After that, we went into a period where we dominated it, Liverpool then started winning it. Nottingham Forest won it. Aston Villa won it. Forest played Malmo in the first final. I went to that game mm. in Munich. I drove down, me watching Forest. The point I'm making is we all supported the English side then going into it. But now it's broadened out. It's become more of a sort of travel opportunity, European mm. football. Of course, that was a bad thing in the years of hooliganism, which hasn't completely been stamped out, but it's more of a travel opportunity and so on and so on. I went to Rome last year and watched the semi-final of the European Conference League. It was a mind-numbingly boring game, Mourinho being one of the managers, but we had a lovely day out and it was interesting to walk around Rome and interesting to see the Olympic Stadium, which is in fact a shambles where Rome play. In the modern context, an awful stadium. So it was interesting to compare how British stadiums have moved on in comparison with some of the Italian stadiums now. But is it as good a competition? I have to say, the European Cup was in a way the pinnacle. The champions the previous year did it. Now it's, you know, it's fighting for fourth place. It gives the travel companies a lot of opportunity and we get more familiar with foreign sides. But is it as good a competition? No. Well, that would certainly be my opinion. But is this the talk of old men or is there something more substantial in football terms that we can point to as being why the one was superior to the other? It's superior competition now, clearly, because in order to win it, 
you have to survive on average between five and eight really difficult matches. You could win, you could become champion of Europe before, after beating the, the champions of Luxembourg, Republic of Ireland, and then maybe a French team, then a Spanish, and then winning it. So you really only have to win three testing matches to become champion of Europe. John mentioned Busby's pioneering. They didn't play many big matches. Of course, when they were big, they were massive. You know, like the one that George Best dominated when United won 5-1 away to Benfica, where no one had ever won before. The matches tended to be huge, but there weren't as many of them. Therefore, it is a much more punishing schedule now. That said, the group stage, or two group stages, as there was once in a nightmare a couple of years, the group stage can be ridiculous. I mean, one little game that my brother and I play when the group stages come out is picking the top two from each of the groups. The winner is someone who gets one wrong because it's so predictable, so utterly predictable who will get through from the groups. What's the point of playing it? So that it can be on in the background in a pub. In other words, for the television audience. It's more tedious but it is a better competition. I would much rather have the fourth best team in Spain than the first team of Luxembourg or Lithuania. I would accept that. It seems to me that it, it doesn't start till the last week in February. That's right. Once it becomes in the calendar year in which the final is played, it becomes the same old thing, only better, because the Luxembourgers are long gone. No, with all due respect to Luxembourg, by the way, I love its radio. <laughs> 208 on the medium wave, yes. John, do you think that Leicester City's run, I think they got to the quarterfinal? I mean, is that one yeah, of the, the great highlights? The only of, English of side life? left in that year at that stage. All, right. the, all the other ones being knocked out. And the last 10 minutes of that game against Atletico Madrid were amongst the most exciting I'd ever seen. Possibly if VAR had been in force, we might have won that game because we lost the first game on the basis of an extremely dubious penalty won by Griezmann, which was clearly outside the area, but that's past history. It was a terrific experience, obviously, but we went in as champions, and that was what actually made it better for us to have done that. I can remember the draw being done, and obviously I listened to the draw and condescendingly said, oh, welcome to a new side this year, which we've never heard of, you know, Leicester City and so on, whereas all the rest, you know, were a cosy club and we'll beat them up and move on. I don't know. There are things in favour of all sorts. You could argue that the group games can be quite good, but playing in Europe has become more commonplace now for clubs. I liked it when it really was special. I'd prefer really to talk, and if we're talking about Europe, the influx of European players and what they brought to the game. In the first place, our English players, you know, they went abroad, didn't they, at that point, and found it very difficult. There was more money for them. If you remember the outflow from England at late 1950s, early 1960s, Greaves, Jerry Hitchens, John Charles. Dennis Law. Very few of them actually stayed for very long. Joe Baker. Joe Baker. But we didn't get many foreign players coming into this country. Eddie Fermani played, but I think he lived here, yes, didn't he? Did. It was Bobby Robson and Ipswich who introduced the two Dutch players 
Tyson Mule, and Mule Muren. And Tyson, yeah. There were some South Africans after the war. John Huey at They're Alfred. not from Europe, Paddy. I know you want us to play Uranus in the next interplanetary <laughs> league, but can we stick to Europe and stop talking out of Uranus at that point? Sorry. Uh, all right. We've gone beyond being eight years old. Too many planetary jokes at this point. Well, I don't know about jokes. <laughs> <laughs> so Tyson and Muren came in and the impact that they made was enormous. Did they come before or after our dealers and via? I know not the European, but the influence of foreign players, they were yes. significant when they came yes. because they just won the, the World Cup. Of course, we had players going to Germany. Kevin Keegan went to Germany. Tony Woodcock went to Germany because the money was that much greater in Europe than in the UK. But then, of course, things started to alter and we got this great rush as we have now. The top European players all come now to England. He was Welsh, actually, that great rush. <laughs> okay, editor Paulie, I see he's, he's just got his scissors out. Ah, <laughs> oh dear. My point was that the late 70s was the time City signed Kazuyu Dana. Correct. In the late 1970s, who, who made much less of an impact on the game than he, than he should have done. There was also Georgi Kinclatri. Yes. Who oh, had that's, an much, that's 20 years later. That was that Who was had an extraordinary impact. Yes. Later on, that was. Yes. No, we'd, we'd had all sorts of other people. We'd had a Norwegian, a writer. We'd had Harlan's father, of course, play, playing yes. for us at one point. You know, so yeah. we, we had plenty of them. But it was really the Bosman ruling that, that opened the flood. The Bosman ruling comes at pretty much the same time that the sky floods football with money. So the two things hard to distinguish between one from the other. But obviously it becomes terribly attractive to foreigners at that point. What I'm more interested in is John's story of Tony Woodcock, because... It wasn't unique, but it was quite rare for an Englishman to go to abroad on that stage. And, and what were the conversations you had with Woodcock? And did he need convincing? And was he really champing at the bit or reluctant to leave? I've mentioned that I went to the first European Cup final that Forrest went. It was in Munich. And as we're driving back, we stopped near Cologne. And I saw a headline in a German newspaper which said Cologne for Woodcock or something like that. And when I came back, I acted for Tony and I had a conversation with him. I said, have you heard anything about this? He said, no. I said, would you fancy it? He said, be interesting, wouldn't it? Cologne were then the big German club. But Forrest had beaten them, actually, in the semi-final, which was effectively the final, I, I think, because Malmo weren't a big side, although they were coached by an Englishman at that yeah, point. Bobby Houghton. Correct. All the clubs in England seemed to have continental coaches. In those days, it was the English coaches who went abroad. So the interaction has been interesting. Anyway, the next season came around and then at some point, Tony rang me up and said, oh, some people came to my house last night and said they were representing Cologne and they want to sign me. I said, well, that's very interesting. Should we see if we can meet them and find out. Technically, this is meant to be illegal under that system at that point. German tapping up. Correct. But the German system was that agents were used in Germany when they first opened the Bundesliga to attract people from behind the Iron Curtain. Because the people coming from behind the Iron Curtain were, of course, not allowed to leave. So they needed these people, who were often emigres, to go and basically bribe officials of the clubs abroad to let them out of those various countries to come to where there was more money in the West. 
Anyway, these two guys who turned out to be Hungarian, one of them was called Gaila Pasta. Tony got his number. I arranged to meet him and he said, Erste FC Cologne, as he called it. Mm. They really want to sign Tony Woodcock. So I said, well, you're not the club. I want to meet the club. I want to hear this from the club and I want to hear what they can offer. So eventually it was arranged that we would fly out there on a Sunday when Tony was due that evening to join up with the England party. We duly booked in. I booked him on. I mean, you could do these things in those. I booked him under under a false name on the aeroplane. I thought I was being very clever. I booked him in under the name of Anthony Stewart, which was his first two names. So that if anybody queried it, I would say, look, if those are his first two names, they've just dropped the woodcock off it. The first people that Tony bumped into in the airport on that Sunday was a forest director. <laughs> and he said, oh, hello, what are you doing here? <laughs> he said, oh, I'm meeting some friends, this, that, and the other. And we quickly disappeared off and got away with it. Anyway, we met with Cologne and the uh, general manager was a man called Carl Heinz-Thielen and the coach was a man called Hennis Weisweiler, quite famous, of course, who won European Cups and so on. And Thielen explained to us that they were very keen to sign uh, Tony. They were only allowed one foreigner at that point, but they were keen to have him as their foreigner. Anyway, to cut a very long story short, Pasta was sent off and Pasta basically bribed Brian Clough to uh, agree a fee to let him go. And eventually a deal was worked out. But this was the enigma of Clough. Clough was determined to try and keep him. But Tony had found out or been told that Clough had accepted money to let him go or agreed to accept money. At that point, he said, well, if he's prepared to let me go and it's making him money, I don't want to play for him. And Tony and I and his wife, we spent one long evening with, with me in my flat in Nottingham, talking to him about it. We knew what he could earn in Germany, which was roughly twice what he could earn at Forest at that point. And he felt that moving abroad would be a really interesting exercise for him. He was a Nottingham boy. He'd only ever played in Nottingham. He'd been to Lincoln on loan, played with Graham Taylor, but he hadn't really been abroad. And he and his wife decided this would be an exciting opportunity. He had three very successful years in Germany the, uh, under his first spell there. He learnt the language. And for him, going abroad and making it work was an extraordinary educative experience. Kevin Keegan was at that point, I think, coming back from Hamburg. English players realised the possibility of going abroad and expanding their education. In those days, so much of the fixing was done by unlikely characters. Often journalists did it, as John will remember. There was one in Scotland who did just about every transfer, a guy, a guy called Jim Roger. But I nearly sent John Bond, your Manchester City manager, to Benfica once. <laughs> very, very close. And I also got a phone call once from John Toshak saying, thank you very much for fixing up my job with Real Sociedad de San Sebastián. <laughs> and I didn't even know I'd fixed him up with it, but he rang me to thank me. The man who, of course, originated the England to Italy or Britain to Italy was a guy called Gigi Perinacci. Correct, yes. Who was a journalist and who was the man behind the short-lived Anglo-Italian yep. summer league. 
Well, that, that raises another question. Dennis was unhappy there and came back quite quickly. Jimmy Greaves was very unhappy there and came back even more quickly. And Ian Rush, of course, famously said playing in Italy was like playing in a foreign country. And it's very binary. It's either you really adapt like Gary did and Tony Woodcock did. They seem to adapt very well, played well, enjoyed their their time there, got the best out of it. Or you went abroad. I mean, in a sense, the film I wrote called Buster was about Buster and his wife going to having to live in Mexico to avoid the police and him coming back because she didn't like abroad. Mm. I mean, this is true. I mean, I made more of it than perhaps there was in real life. But essentially, that was the story. Well, it's always it been... It very pronounced in football. It's always been a mixture. It even was in the initial, well, as far as I was aware, emigration, which was the Colombian one. Colombia did what I was suggesting earlier and formed a single national league in which all the best players in the world... And it worked. Alfredo Di Stefano went to play there. And the cream of the English players... They were expelled from FIFA. They were, yes, they were expelled. Right. And that's why part of the reason that it failed. But even then, Charlie Mitten from Manchester United settled pretty well, but his wife didn't. George Mountford was one of the Stoke lads. Neil Franklin, Neil, Neil Franklin. Franklin was the other. And again, it was, it was mainly problems with wives integrating. They, they were quite happy, uh, the players. Uh, Flavel, Scottish player, was happy. And then, of course, you move on to the Italian emigration. John Charles was extremely happy there. Great Welsh player. Uh, still known as King John in Turin, even though he's been dead for many years, revered and regularly voted as the best foreigner ever to play, and, and certainly was a happy one, it, as indeed was Jerry Hitchens, who, who played for many years in Italy, whereas Jimmy Greaves was unhappy, Dennis Law was unhappy, and Joe Baker was quite unhappy as well. So it was a mixed bunch. I mean, now, of course, they go there young, and going to Germany is no big deal. For the likes of Jude Bellingham, Jaden Sancho, they probably hardly noticed the difference. Did Mrs Woodcock need more persuasion than Mr Woodcock, John? No, not really. So she was very open-minded as well? Yeah, they both were. And they were both involved in the decision. When they went there, I mean, that's going to complicate your life if you're still looking after them in inverted commas. Did that cause problems for you? Well, yeah, but I could get over relatively easy. The phones did work. Yeah, I used to send them videotapes of stuff and so on. That I, in return, got videotapes back of the German league. And I learned all about the players there and the different systems and the relationship between the director of football and the coach. They always had a director of football who was probably a football man. Carl Heinz Thielen, who was the director of football, as it were, at Cologne, was an ex-player, yeah, and he hired the coach. He hired Weissweiler, and he hired Renus Meikles, who came after yeah. Weissweiler. And Taylor was playing. I saw him play. He played for the national he, side, but yeah. only a couple of times. He played in a Cologne team, the first FC Cologne team, that played in the first uh, European Cup tie at Dundee after we'd won the league in 1961-2. And they came over, and uh, do you know what the score was? You probably beat them, did you? Yeah, but what do you think the score was? Oh, Paddy, it's going to be enormous. 6-1. 8-1. 
you know, just show a little bit of respect, John, for Dundee Football Club. Of course. And I'm sure Mr. Taylor, I don't know if you discussed Dundee with him. I haven't. He would have spoken no. in awestruck terms, trust me. He would. He's still alive, and I speak to him from time to time, so I will mention that. But the great transfer, of course, I say great in inverted commas, the most interesting transfer I did to uh, Italy was the transfer of Luther Blissett. Yeah. And this took place over a weekend in late May, early June. Graham Taylor, who I'd come across because I was introduced to him by Tony Woodcock, because he'd been Tony Woodcock's manager when he was on loan at Lincoln. He rang me and said, Milan have made an approach. And in view of the amount of money they're offering us, and they probably will offer him, I think, you know, we ought to give him the chance to do so. I've asked Luther, he hadn't got an agent. Will you come and act for him? So I said, yeah, fine. If Luther is happy, I'll meet him. It was all done in motels in glamorous places like Watford. The Italians turned up with their general manager and a man described as their interpreter who turned out to be a restaurateur from Pimlico. <laughs> there were various hilarious bits where the interpreter would talk for about five times as long as the uh, Milan official. <laughs> I said, hold on, you're meant to be the interpreter. But he said, no, he's on my friend. I know what he thinks. <laughs> and, um, anyway, the whole thing descended on the Saturday into a bit of a shambles. And I, at that point, I said, no, I think this is not going to work. We're not going to go. And Luther was a bit mm -mm, like this about it. I said to Graham Taylor, what do you think? And Graham Taylor said, if Luther's not happy, we don't do it. Anyway, but on the Sunday, he rang me back and said, oh, they're still determined to do it. Can we meet on Monday at a tailor's shop in Savile Row? I kid you not, mm. in the basement. Mm. And the other request had been that the Watford chairman at that point, who was Elton John, turn up. So we have this bizarre scene in a basement of a tailor's shop in Savile Row where the Italians turned up. The Italians were represented by a restaurateur from Pimlico, two officials, and Gianni Rivera, the golden boy oh. of Italian football. I mean, film star looks. He was like Rosano Brazzi. Yeah, yeah. He had the shades on, the suit, the whole lot. And Luther Blissett, who was in T-shirt and jeans, this is the English summer, and Elton John, who arrived in a safari suit and a piff helmet. <laughs> <laughs> large glasses yeah. I kid you not and it's one of those things I, I thought I have no idea what's happening here <laughs> this is completely bizarre anyway they all shook hands and Senior John Senior John it was all you know I began to wonder whether the whole object of this was that they got to meet Elton John and Elton John got to meet Johnny Rivera we then went off to the accountant's office of Watford and the negotiations went on and on and on. And eventually they agreed the financial terms. I can remember going out, I said to Luther, look, this, this money, that money. And he said, yeah, I think I'll give it a go. All right, we'll go back in. I said, I'm not going to agree immediately because we never agree things immediately. So I went back in and said, yes, I think we're nearly there. But there is one big problem. So they looked at me, oh, oh, you are I said, he wants a Lamborghini. Oh, he's impossible. You They fell all over the place. I said, no, it's a joke. It's all right. It's a joke. Oh, yeah. At which point they got it and we did the deal. Now, we then went into another room, at which point, for the first time, the 
coach of Milan emerged and there were lots of handshaking and all this sort of thing. And he went up to Luther and said, uh, oh, Luther, you prefer the ball into space or at your feet? And I looked at Graham Taylor and Graham Taylor's eyebrows shot in the air. And I suddenly twigged what had happened here. They'd heard about a black player playing for Watford who had scored a lot of goals. I always thought... And they'd sent a scout over, and for whatever reason, Luther didn't play. So John Barnes, who took over Luther's place from time to time, moved from 11 to 9. This was before the era of squad numbers. And, of course, John Barnes, tremendous player. And I still think to this day that the Milanese went away thinking they had signed John Barnes well, and not Luther Wow! You know, as football fans, we'd heard I that. thought it was an urban myth, that. And I thought, like, Paddy, it was an urban myth. No, I, I swear to you, I remember the exact moment. Anybody who hasn't watched Luther Bissett play mm. would know that you do not play the ball into his feet. You definitely play it into space. Luther lived in a gated community in a suburb of Milan called Bruzzano. And the reason I know that is that I went over to interview him, and I'm sure you fixed it up, John. It's almost certainly correct. Yeah. <laughs> I can't think of who else would have done. But, John, uh, were you negotiating Luther's contract, or were you negotiating... I mean, who no, was negotiating No, I was negotiating his contract. Correct. Who was negotiating the fee between the clubs? They did that. I didn't do that. Um, and so you, you came in after that, presumably? Yeah, I never did that. I only ever acted on behalf of the players. It's still my belief that the whole system of agents went wrong when they followed the continental example of enabling intermediaries. And this was, as I've explained earlier, because of the necessity to use people to bribe people from behind the Iron Curtain rather than the American model of agents, which was that the agents were only allowed to act on behalf of the player. And the whole relationship between the player's union and agents was different. And in my opinion, a lot of football's problems would yes. have been clarified if that had been established as the way forward. In fact, before John's time, it was the rule in English football that agents were not allowed to be involved in transfers of representing clubs. Now, of course, dual representation is, as John rightly says, a bane of the game, a source of corruption and of institutionalised corruption, I would say. And, of course, imposes an extra cost on football and therefore inflates ticket prices for the ordinary fans. It also reinforces, I'm afraid, the preeminence of the big clubs yes. who actually say to the agents, go round and tap this player up, that player up, and so on. We will pay you a big fee if you can get that player to come to us rather than somebody else, which actually means that the players are done out mm. of money that is rightfully theirs. Yep. John, you were talking about Woodcock and the influx into England and out of England, mm. back to mm -hmm. York, that Woodcock is at the start and Keegan at the start of the, the, big, the big rush. Mm. How much of this was football-based and how much of it was financially based? In other words, was the attraction for English people going to play in Europe purely motivated by financial concerns? Or was there a sense that there was a glamour to European football that there wasn't any glamour at that stage in English football? I think it's hard to say because each case is individual, isn't it? I think Keegan, people had seen that Keegan went there 
and had become European Footballer of the Year, two years on the trot, mm. as I recall. And Germany were in the ascendancy then, weren't they? We've talked previously about 1966 and 1970 and the that landmark game where Germany sort of took over and then they won, of course, the World Cup in 1974 and so on. So you're talking about a shift in power to Germany. Earlier it was Italy, this time it was Germany who were powerful and players wanted to go to Germany and looked at Germany and they could earn a lot more money in Germany at that point. Yes, they're professionals, they were looking at that situation, but there was also a feeling that Keegan had developed himself and Woodcock as well, that he developed as a player as a result of going. And of course, Keegan was playing for Hamburg when Forrest beat them in the final in 1980, I and yes. that was the first time, so I, I remember the emotion being so thrilled because it was a desperate back to the wall, a defensive play by Clough's Forest because the Germans were all over them. But we beat them. I mean, all right, Forest beat them. But in those days, you could say we. And it was perhaps the first time that we'd had a major triumph over Germany since yeah. 1966. One of the, one of, probably one of Shilton's greatest games. That, yeah, he was uh, outstanding. And John Robertson, genius winger, scored the only goal. And they defended like crazy for the next 15 minutes. That was the stage at which Forrest, from being an attacking side the year before, became more defensively minded side. So going back to the idea of Europe being so overwhelmingly attractive, I found it quite remarkable that everybody in February, March, April, they're all going crazy about getting into Europe, whether they're European couple, getting European football to Brighton. This is such a big deal, and particularly when they're in the UEFA Cup. At the beginning of the following season, all the UEFA clubs, when they don't do ter- if they don't have a good start to the season, they're all complaining, well, we're playing on Thursday and Sunday and it's terrible, and all this UEFA nonsense is making our lives much more difficult. There seems to be two completely different responses to the UEFA Cup. The one in the spring where they want to be in it and the one in the autumn where it's a pain in the neck and then yeah, it's in the way. Yeah, the reason for this is that the clubs that qualify for the Europa League don't have the same size of squad as the Champions League clubs. Mm. I'm afraid Thursday to Sunday is exactly the same span of time as Wednesday yes. to Saturday. It's nothing to do with that. It's to do with the size of your squad and your ability. I mean... I remember Newcastle qualifying under Alan Pardew for the Europa League about, I just must be about 15 years now. And ever since then, there have been clubs that have got into Europe. And as soon as they get into Europe, it all implodes. Even Fulham under Roy Hodgson in the season in which they reached the Europa League final, they shot about eight places down the league. Anfield always had special nights, European nights, didn't they? Famously against Saint-Étienne, I think in the late 1970s. David Fairclough. David Fairclough, exactly. Mm. That sense that, that they could do anything. And it came back. I mean, the one that I remember was the one where they were they 3-0 down and won 4-0 in the second leg at Anfield and they scored in the last five minutes. It was just a fantastic night. The semi-final of the European Cup. Are you talking about against Barcelona? Yeah, well, it was, well, yeah. It was the, the greatest corner kick ever taken by uh, uh, Trent Alexander-Arnold and converted by Divock Origi. That was great. So it's possible to have those great European nights, not just at Anfield, but in general. Well, speaking. they're better. I mean, what could have been better than 1999, the final? 
in terms of the last... What could have been better than the 1999, the final? I'm talking... I went to some fringe theatre in a pub in, in East Dalton mm. to avoid the 1999 European Cup final. Sorry, I meant what could have been better for a, a neutral or a Manchester United <laughs> fan. No, I suppose nobody's neutral where Manchester United are concerned. I think we were all Bavarians that night. We were all metaphorically wearing lederhosen, even you, Colin, I think, that night. Always suggesting that, that Europe is a good thing. I mean, not to be too binary about it. The, the prospect of European football is the driving force behind the success of English football. Or is it simply something completely different? It's something that's happened as a result. What has happened was the Premier League and the popularity of English clubs, the media rights, the situation between the growth of uh, satellite television and the money that was pumped in by Rupert Murdoch it enabled English clubs to catch up with the European clubs and overtake them. And now, of course, what we have is there are very few English managers, not many Scottish managers now yeah. either. Most managers were Scottish at one point and the most top managers are from Europe and most have an enormous number of players coming from the European continent as well as further afield but a lot of them come from Italy, they come from Spain, they come from Germany, they come from Holland, they come from Belgium of course. So you could say we already have this European league pattern yes. that you're on about. Has that led to the England side not being as good? Well Evidence says, no, the reverse is true. In the 1950s and 60s, when we didn't have this foreign influence, we were pretty poor. We didn't enter the European nations. We did badly in the World Cup and our football went backwards. Since this has happened, we have actually done better in the World Cup, with the exception of 1966. 1990, Italia 90 is just one of those things you, you say that match proved the efficacy for television, of football. I'm convinced that that match, with its enormous audience, persuaded Murdoch to put money into getting the Premier League, and from there on, everything changed. But to go back to that concept of the unification of European football, whether we like it or not, to me, one of the most extraordinary things about European top-level football in the last few years is how long it's taking for England to become as dominant in Europe as Rangers and Celtic are in Scotland. The overwhelming financial might of the English off the field, if you like, the English owners, is such that really we should be winning the Champions League every year and we should really have both finalists most years. In terms of budgets in England, we're just so far ahead of anybody else and the gap is going to continue to grow. Spanish football is about to go into a major decline because Barcelona have crippled themselves for the, for the foreseeable future by what they've done with their finances. And it's an inexorable process that English football, which already, in my opinion, is an unhealthy preponderance, will shortly have an unhealthy dominance over the yes of Europe. I'm not interested in Europe. I don't give really a toss about whether it's the Champions League or the European Cup. But what I do not want is for one country to dominate the whole of Europe in the same way as one club dominates so many countries. The point that I would like to, to bring up as we draw this conversation to a close is that 
we've lost some of the exoticism that we might have previously associated with European football and with European cities because we all go there. It's become now our backyard. If you go to a main street in Cologne or Frankfurt or anywhere in Western Europe, really, you will see many of the same shops. You will see the same cars that are on the streets in England. You will get a sense of, this is very nice, that the weather's better and you can sit outside at the cafes. But essentially, it's not the different country that Ian Roche pointed out that it used to be. <laughs> when we were growing up, the south of France was like Barbados or the Galapagos Islands. It was an exotic place that only the jet set went to. Mm-hmm. South of France was not a place for the likes of us who went to the Lake District or to Cornwall. So I suppose it's part of the same social trend. And I'd like the two of you to to sort of summarise your feelings about Europe and European football and British football, bearing in mind this inevitable trend towards Britain being ironically, as politically it withdraws from Europe, that in football terms, it's become absolutely and centrally part of European football. I don't really think I can improve on your summary there, except to say that when we talk about global Britain, the thing is that we we actually have global Britain in one industry called football. Our companies are owned, as as you rightly said, by the richest countries in the world, including net high worth individuals in the United States. Spot the British owner, you know? I mean, there are some, but they're few and getting fewer. And even in the, I mean, John will correct me if I'm wrong, but I I think probably half the championship, in other words, half the aspirant, half the aspirant Mm. premiership clubs are owned by either consortiums or individuals from overseas. So (laughs) I hate to keep returning to the same theme, but whether we like it or not, we've become as dominant in this, what we now call an industry, but used to be our passion. Mm. We've become as dominant in that as the United States has been in industry and finance as a whole. Watch what will happen in the future. America used to believe that they ruled the world. I always said there were one or two ways that you could insult Americans. One of them was to say that the World Cup was bigger than the Olympics, and they looked at you in utter (laughs) astonishment. If you really want to be rude, you then said, and there are more movies made in Bollywood than Hollywood. And if I really want to get cruel, I said, to be absolutely honest with you, Michael Jordan could walk down the street in London and no one would know who he is. They hadn't discovered what they called soccer. They have now discovered it. The next trend will be that America will buy up all the big players. And it may be I'm being a bit cynical about Paddy's interplanetary league or whatever he wants to come (laughs) up with. But America may well, you know, win the World Cup within the next 10 years, let us say, because they'll start producing their best sportsmen will come from there. As for me, you know, I just want to keep on watching Leicester and like Colin would like to watch Manchester City, but I suspect we will watch the other games and so on and it'll be slightly different for us and the game will move on. But It'll lose some of the romantic bits, but who knows what's going to happen in terms of space exploration and so on and so on. It's inevitable, the globalisation that you talk about, the same streets, the same language. Funnily enough, two things we dominate in. One, football. Second, language. Everybody understands language. Everybody understands football. It's a fair point. It's a fair point. And John's, John's already made a bid 
for the Uranus national team. <laughs> Paddy, thank you. John, thank you. These are, this has been as ever the, the views of three old men talking in their cups. But having said <laughs> that, I do think there's been a sense of pessimism, which I'm sorry about, and I apologise to the listeners, that the implication of what we're saying and where we see the, the game going is essentially it is going to be different, it is going to be bigger, it's not necessarily going to be better, it is going to be very different from what we experienced in our earlier youth. So I want to know from our listeners what they feel about it. Do they feel as pessimistic or do they still retain the optimism and the romanticism that would have fed their original passion for the game? Passion is what it's about, not money. That's the reason that we love the game, it's passion. And I'd like you to tell us how you feel. And you can do that by writing to us at footballruinmylife at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We want to know what you think. We don't want to be talking you know, just to each other. We want to know what you think. And we will see you next time, I hope, on the next edition of Football Ruin My Life. Thank you for listening. See you again. And if any of those people to whom I have attributed illegal or seditious acts are still alive, please don't contact me. Contact Collins. The story about the pith helmet and Gianni Rivera, <laughs> that is a scene that will live in my life forever. Paul thinks there's a play in it. Paul is already casting. Well, there was a play written called, you know, after Turin, there was an evening with Gary yes. Lineker. So there could be a morning with John Holmes in the basement of uh, Savile Row. There's some good stories in that, I can tell you. Podcast Network.